the assumption is that capitalists and Marxists must always be completely separate things. Okay, you, you couldn't possibly run a successful business and be a Marxist. Well, that's not really true at all. Welcome back, everyone, to Mind Matters. This is our first show of the year, I believe. And we are interviewing Dr. Richard B. Spence, the author of Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. In addition to a number of other books, um, I'll just read off the back. He's got uh, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult. And he's got a few projects in the works right now that we may be able to get into today. So uh, welcome to the show, Rick. Um, looking forward to talking about your book. Just finished it last night, and the guys have been reading it too and really enjoying it. I want to start out with just the kind of the history of the book, because I, th I found that to be fascinating. Because for anyone that's kind of uh, familiar with like, uh, I'd say conspiracy literature or kind of alternative history. They've probably heard of, uh, Ant Anthony Sutton's book, wall street and the Bolshevik revolution. And so in the, in the intro matter to this book, you, you, or maybe it was your editor mentions kind of the genesis of the book and how you'd originally planned on, um, getting the rights to Sutton's book and doing a new edition of it. And then your own research kind of spiraled, um, kind of grew and you ended up producing this book. So I want to, I just want you to talk a little bit about that history. So, um, what was it, how did your research kind of like bring you to, to follow the same lines that Sutton did in his book? Well, I probably first encountered Tony Sutton's book, uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. I'd say probably back in the early 80s. Uh, he wrote the book in the 70s. And that's when he was, I think, still around the time. We won't go too much into, into Sutton's history, but Anthony Sutton was for a fair amount of time a, a researcher, a scholar attached to the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford University. And he later left the Hoover Institution, or depending on who you talk to, either left of his own accord or was kicked out. Um, he takes the latter version. I think they take the former one. Uh, is probably because he was delving into areas that were uh, somewhat you know, iffy in, in terms of the, the, the policies of the Institute. In any case, um, Anthony Sutton, basically is probably best known for a kind of trilogy of works. And one of them is Wall Street, the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, and Wall Street and the rise of FDR. Um, because my primary interest has always been in Russian history, it was the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution that interested me. I probably first came across that back when I was working on a biography. In fact, the first book I wrote was on a relatively obscure Russian revolutionary figure by the name of Boris Savinkov. So anybody who's looking for rare, expensive books can go find that, Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the left. 
And Savinkov is, you know, if you look at the general history of the Russian Revolution, uh, that name's not going to ring a bell. You know, people have heard of Lenin, they've heard of Trotsky, they've heard of Stalin, but you're not going to hear about Savinkov. And the simple reason for that is that Savinkov is one of those people who uh, bit every hand that ever fed him and burned every bridge he crossed. And therefore, he managed in his relatively short lifetime to piss off everyone so that no one wanted to talk about him thereafter. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things you find there are historical figures that people will then you know, say good things about after they die. Uh, there are those that people will say bad things about. And then there are the ones that people won't say anything about. And those are often the most interesting ones. So it suffice to say that Savinkov was mixed up in a whole variety of revolutionary intrigues. And that, in the terms of the research, sort of brought me around to looking at Sutton's book. And um, it was one of those things that I, that I read, I thought was interesting. I'd have to admit, I didn't think that Sutton really tended to provide a lot of, you know, he, he posed some interesting ideas, especially this connection between American capital and, and Russian revolution, especially the Bolsheviks in particular. Uh, and so I sort of read it and forgot about it. But then as time went on, one thing brings you to another. So for instance, the Russian Revolution brought me to Boris Savinkov. Savinkov eventually, the examination of him brought me to one of his friends or collaborators, this uh, a spy by the name of, or usually described as a spy, Sidney Riley. And then looking into Riley's career, you began to delve deeper into the various rabbit holes and conspiratorial connections between people. And that's what then eventually brought me back to Sutton's book. And then I, looking at it again, with the other things that I had learned in the meantime, I can see that, yeah, Anthony Sutton is really on to something here. He's, he's, he's kind of piecing, you know, Sutton didn't have a lot of material to work with. Um, Russian archives weren't open at that time. Uh, much of the critical material that you would find simply wasn't available to him. But while sometimes in the details of his study were off, he was on the right track. There was a connection. And it's one of those that you have to piece together very carefully because there are lots of people who are involved in this. And, you know, that's that's one of the, um, you know, I, I suppose one of the justifiable criticisms that could probably be brought up by anything that I write is that there's lots of names in it. Okay. This is one of the things people don't. Uh, this has got a lot of characters. It's got a lot of names. It's very complicated. And yeah, because that's just the way that it is. Life is complicated. Um, high finance and low politics are complicated, especially when they come together. And you can simplify a story. You can leave the minor characters out and concentrate upon the other ones, but you're never going to get the, the whole picture of it. It's, it's often one of the things that becomes key in so much of this is who knows who? How are people connected to each other? Because really what you're trying to look at here isn't so much a kind of financial network. You're looking at a network of people. 
and in every particular level and in any political conspiracy, whatever you want to call them, it always depends upon the interrelationship between human beings. So here in a way is, uh, and also because it's, it's <laughs> pretty much on my mind at the present time, one of the key elements that sort of would bring me back to Sutton's war and tie a number of things together had to do with Leon Trotsky. See, now there's a Russian revolutionary people will generally recognize. And his very short but significant visit to the United States in early 1970. So this is one of these little details that can often be missed in Trotsky's career. But in January 1917, having been kicked out of France and then kicked out of Spain, he landed in New York City. And he was there all the way through the end of March 1917. So not a long period of time, around three months, but a lot's going to happen in that period of time. And so while he was there, the first Russian Revolution happened in 1917. Uh, the, you know, Tsar Nicholas abdicated, the provisional government was created, that government then issued a general amnesty for all revolutionary exiles, and he went home. He sailed from New York to go back to Russia. Now, in his book, Sutton mentions a number of things about, you know, Trotsky's visit there. He, he sees that as something which is significant, because one of the things that was is often alleged is that while in New York, Trotsky made financial connections. In particular, the name that comes up again and again and again was a very prominent American banker by the name of Jacob Henry Schiff. So if you tend to look around, especially if you look through what could be called conspiratorial literature, you will often see the idea is that Trotsky came to New York and the banker, Jacob Schiff, gave him millions of dollars or something of that kind. Uh, then you'll also find uh, one of the things that Sutton has in his book is that, uh, well, you know, Trotsky went back to Russia carrying an American passport that was personally issued by President Woodrow Wilson. That, by the way, is not true. All right. That, you know, that's one of those things that didn't happen, partly because there wasn't any reason for it to happen. It got me very curious about this, this whole kind of interlude. And that's where I eventually began to find that one of the most important things about Trotsky, well, at least for, in terms of my research, is, is his family. And in particular, his mother's side of his family. And this is one of the interesting things is that if you tend to read through, if you look, for instance, at Trotsky's autobiography, My Life, which he wrote in the 1930s, you'll find that uh, he makes various mentions about his early life and his family, but he doesn't drop too many names. He often refers to people by their first name. But if you look closely at his autobiography, when he's talking about his childhood, he'll talk about Uncle Abram. And Uncle Abram, he describes as, uh, you know, an, an older relative, his mother's brother, or one of his mother's brothers. And that, uh, you know, Abram didn't pay much attention to any of the other nieces and nephews, but he did kind of pay some attention to me. You know, every now and then he says he would single me out. 
And that's really kind of underplaying the situation, because if you, you know, delve into it further, you find out that Trotsky actually lived with Uncle Abram for a while while he was going to school. And that Uncle Abram was indeed one of four brothers of Trotsky's mother, and they all came from the Zhivatovsky family. Now, that's a name, if you look through Trotsky's autobiography, never mentions, never utters the word Zhivatovsky, even though it was a fairly large family, and there was a whole side of his relations that were part of it, and he was quite close to Uncle Abram. In fact, he would remain close to his uncle throughout much of the, the rest of his life. And, and here's an example of it. Here's one of the things that, 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 you know, sort of putting the puzzle pieces together. So Trotsky mentions a relationship, a kind of special relationship between uncle and nephew back when he was a child. But then in May 1917, when Trotsky, remember, having gone to New York and then having returned to Russia after you know, various problems that he experienced on the way, in May 1917, Leon Trotsky lands in Norway. All right, he's neutral Norway, and that's where he's going to catch the train, and that's going to take him back to Russia through Scandinavia. So he's almost home. So as you might expect, one of the things that he does is he goes to the telegraph office in, in Christiania, in Oslo. And, and he telegraphs to Petrograd. Who does he telegraph? Who does he send the announcement that I am coming? I'm going to be there in a few days. Does he send that to some of his revolutionary comrades? Well, maybe he did later in the day, but that's not the first person he telegraphs. The person he telegraphs to announce his arrival is Abram Zhivatovsky. And that's one of the things that attests that there is an ongoing relationship between the two through all of these years. Now, there's a very interesting difference between Trotsky, who has become a career Marxist revolutionary, basically bouncing around from one country to another, and his uncle. And his uncle, in the meantime, has become a millionaire capitalist. In fact, all of his Zhivatovsky uncles have become wealthy members of the Russian industrial and financial elite. They're all millionaires. <laughs> That's one of the little things you really The whole half of Trotsky's family are millionaires. So Abram is, that got me interested in Abram Zhivatovsky and the rest of the Zhivatovsky brothers. And if you look around, you can, particularly in Russia, people have done some genealogical research on this and you can kind of trace their business relationships. Who were they in business with? Where did they start? Who were their partners? Who were their collaborators? Who were their competitors? So this is where I found out that at the beginning of the First World War, Abram Zhivatovsky teamed up with a couple of his brothers, and uh, they were going to make money off of war contracts. Because one of the things to keep in mind always in any situation is that while wars can be tremendous disasters for the bulk of people, there's always someone who makes money off of them. There has to be. Look at all the money, which nothing, no human activity in entire human history is, is great, a greater enterprise than war. It's always the biggest business around. 
It consumes more resources. It consumes more money. It consumes more lives and attention than anything else. And all of the money which goes to pay for warfare, which always has goes to pay for warfare, isn't gathered together somewhere in a field and set on fire. It goes from one pocket to another. All of that money, all of the wealth which war consumes is not consumed, is simply transferred elsewhere. So, you know, if you're, you know, one of the things to go into is that if there's a war somewhere, well, there's stuff to be sold, uh, and those who sell it are going to generally profit quite handsomely. So Avram Zhivatovsky was um, a committed capitalist, and he could see the war as a, as a capitalist venture, and the Russian government was going to need lots of weapons and munitions that they couldn't produce on their own. And so one of the places to find that was in the neutral United States. So here again is one of those things that's, I think, often kind of lost in the shuffle. For most of World War I, the United States was a neutral country. So the war begins in August 1914. It's not until April 1917 that the United States enters the war. So for the bulk of the war, the U.S. is a neutral country. And it means as a neutral country that all kinds of things can go on there that, that couldn't go on elsewhere. And it, it can also, you know, theoretically, it could have produced weapons and made loans to both sides. That becomes much more difficult to do for the Germans. But, you know, a huge amount of war material is being produced in the United States. So, for instance, you find that by 1917, there are entire factories in the U.S. There's, there's a whole plant outside, and this is just one of them, outside of Philadelphia, called the Eddystone Ammunition Company, which is doing nothing but producing artillery shells for the Russian army. A whole company in the United States in the neutral U.S. was formed to produce uh, the, you know, uh, uh, arms contracts for the Russians. So Uncle Abram was quite right. There was, a, there was a lot of money to be made. So what he and his brothers did was they set up a, a company called the Petrograd Trading Company. And it opened offices in Japan and in London, but most importantly, uh, in the Equitable Building at 120 Broadway, right in the financial district of New York. And they established that in early 1915 to essentially deal with Russian war contracts. Now, here for me, this may not mean much elsewhere, it was the kind of clincher. Who was the man that Abram Zhivatovsky sent to New York to manage Petrograd trading? Sidney Riley, another fellow who, despite his Irish-sounding name, was born in Russia, uh, had a whole background career as a kind of, basically as a businessman. Uh, he's much the same thing, you know, not as successful as Abram, but he's Abram Zhivatovsky's employee. He's working for him. He's his main agent in New York. So what this all boils down to is that when Trotsky arrives in New York in January 1917, he's arriving in a place where his uncle, his favorite uncle, a man who, by the way, has financially supported him during his revolutionary career, because, you know, Uncle Abram was apparently a soft touch, has a business office right next to Wall Street. And Zhivatovsky does business with all kinds of firms and people in New York. He is very well connected to that. In fact, to make this, to add yet another name to the story, but it's necessary, one of the other people who in 
Russia and America, Trotsky's uncle does business with, is a Swedish banker by the name of Olaf Ashberg. Olaf Ashberg ran a bank. He managed his own bank in Stockholm called the New Bank or the Njabanken. And what made Oshberg and his bank somewhat exceptional in the banking world is that Oshberg was an avowed socialist. And he had created his new bank, his Njabanken, as a bank specifically for Swedish working people. Nothing too, nothing nefarious in that. But it, it's, it's one of the interesting things that you tend to find if you look closely. The assumption is that capitalists and Marxists must always be completely separate things. Okay, you, you couldn't possibly run a successful business and be a Marxist. Well, that's not really true at all. I mean, it's uh, socialist businessmen abounded everywhere. Uh, it really wasn't that unusual. So, you know, Olaf Oshberg isn't uh, anything that strange. He was, you know, he was more open about it in that regard. The other thing, though, about Olaf Oshberg and, and where you might most commonly encounter his name in history, you come across it, is that during World War I, he becomes mixed up in, as his bank is used essentially as money laundering for the transfer of German funds to subsidize revolutionary activities in Russia. And this indeed was part of a whole program which was which was going on. Was Parvis uh, and that's all tied connected up with to him? Parvis, yes. Alexander Helpan Parvis. This is his old name. Ashberg was the banker for Parvis. All right. And and Parvis was another Russian revolutionary who who had essentially gone to the German. You know, Parvis had Parvis and, and Trotsky also had been close at one point. In fact, go back to around 1905, that's when uh, Parvis is older than Trotsky. And was he really his, you know, Trotsky describes him as his mentor. Many of Trotsky's own political ideas, a lot of his personal twists on Marxism, the concept of permanent revolution. Now, if you look at, at, at uh, Trotsky, he's always connected to the guy who comes up with the idea. Well, he didn't come up with the concept of permanent revolution. He just, you know, sort of appropriated it from Alexander Helpan, from Parvis, as he's generally known. And Parvis also, by the way, was a successful businessman. <laughs> he's another Marxist revolutionary who's running businesses quite profitably. <laughs> so one of the interesting things I find about this. So at the beginning of World War I, Parvis, uh, you know, went to the germs and he goes, look, uh, I have a lot of connections with uh, revolutionaries in Russia. There are a lot of people who would like to overthrow the existing Russian government, which you're now at war with. So give me a lot of marks, you know, or whatever money you have, and I'll use that to subsidize subversion in Russia, and, and it will bring about its collapse. Now, an important point to keep in mind is that to whatever degree Parvis was personally responsible exactly the scenario he describes comes to pass. So when Russia collapses in 1917, it does not collapse militarily. It collapses politically, economically, and in many ways, psychologically. 
That is this, this effort of subversion, of economic subversion, of political subversion is successful. That's what eventually will bring about the catastrophic changes which are there. So Harvest was quite right, at least in terms of what it would take. You know, if you want to defeat Russia, the way to do is to destroy it from the inside rather than battling its armies at the front. Hmm. So his strategy was basically correct. So you'll usually see Ashberg cited as the banker, you know, sometimes as the Bolsheviks banker or as the Swedish bank, you know, Sweden again being a neutral country close to Russia, the Swedish bank that was used to transfer German money to the Bolsheviks in Russia. And it was, but that's not all of it. And this, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm really trying to expand now, even further than I did in the book here, um, is that I think that, that most of the attention on the, the Bolshevik funding network, you know, which included a, a woman by the name of Yevgenia Sumanson and, uh, and Jakob First. You know, Lenin had a, some financial agents and they were working with Parvis and they were transferring money. They were actually, they were actually doing commercial transactions. This is the thing. This is the way the money was being passed from Germany through Oshberg's bank and then eventually paid into accounts in Petrograd because it was all being done as business transactions. So the Bolshevik agents were actually working as the representatives of commercial companies that were making real or phony purchases in Sweden or elsewhere. And then the money was passed back and forth between bank accounts and remittances. It's as simple as that. Somebody buys something here, uh, money is then transferred from this bank to another. So, I mean, it's an interesting little point because it shows you the degree to which revolutionary subversion and business activities are all kind of combined with each other. And it's even kind of trickier than that because, you know, Parvis was not only using his businesses to fund subversion, he was also running a successful business. That is, it really was a business. So it makes it often very difficult to figure out, you know, what part of this is business and what part of this is, is politics? Are the two clearly separable? So this is the whole sort of world in which Trotsky's millionaire uncle is now a business partner of a banker who we know otherwise is involved in money laundering of German money for to fund revolution there. And, and then you've got that his that Jivotovsky's uncle is one of these revolutionaries, and then he's in New York, or there, or or Jivotovsky has an office run by Sidney Riley, who will later con his way into British intelligence. Um um, you know, in, in a, a year later in 1918, when what will essentially become British MI6 sends Riley into Russia on a special mission, the whole purpose of that mission was to go in and to make contact with Trotsky, who was then the Bolshevik commissar of war. Now, that only makes sense. As to why, well, why would the British send Riley to do that? Well, because Riley and Trotsky knew each other. 
That, that's the way that Riley sold his services to the British. He goes, through my long-term association and contact with Trotsky's beloved uncle, Avram, I know Trotsky, and I have a personal connection to him. And therefore, if you send me into Russia as a businessman, I can open a back channel to the second most important person in the Bolshevik regime. Now, there are lots of other questions connected with that. What was Riley's actual motive? Was his motive to loyally serve British interests by opening this back channel? Or in doing that, was he serving Trotsky's interests? So it's, it's one of these things that I'm going to go too far into sort of Riley's side in this. But, you know, Riley generally goes down in history as a, uh, as a British intelligence agent who was always fighting the Bolsheviks. And I would submit to you that that is not true at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Riley was a, you know, I'd probably describe him best as a kind of international criminal and businessman, but who always had his, always has his own revolutionary loyalties. That's what he's fundamentally loyal to. And he is exploiting his relationship with the British in order to eventually funnel more money or support to he's, he's actually working he's not actually working for the bolsheviks in that sense he's working for trotsky mm -hmm. because that mm -hmm. then brings you into the realm that within the soviet regime from the beginning there are factional disputes there's always this it's one of the things you have to look at in any kind of political hierarchy they're almost never unified mm. Okay, so people may join together. I don't know. Here's the simplest example I can give you. Uh, Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky were both, by you know, 1918, Bolsheviks, right? They were both loyal satraps to Lenin. Or were they? I mean, they may have both served Lenin, but from the very beginning, they hated each other's guts, and they become mortal enemies. So people who other on one level are supposedly unified in the pursuit of communism and world revolution hate each other and will do everything they can to undermine the other and in fact destroy them. Well, and the same applies so the whole thing between the same would apply on the other side, like when you look at the Wall Street angle, right? And this is the point you make, I think, in the conclusion to the book, is that when you're looking at the Wall Street connections, um, there are there are all kinds of different I guess like almost clans, you have like the JP Morgan, you have Schiff, you have Charles Crane, and you've got the Warburgs. And sometimes they'll work together on something. Sometimes they have connections to each other, but at the same time, they're all, they, they're, their own operations and, and, um, interests con come in conflict with one another oftentimes, and they're not always out for the same thing. And so for instance, you had the, the conflict between Schiff who you mentioned already, and Crane, who you, who you hadn't mentioned, kind of in the early earlier years, so after 1905, where um, they didn't exactly want the same things, but they ended up supporting some of the same causes um, in pursuit of those of those aims. So they basically both wanted the fall of the of the czarist of the czar of czarism mm -hmm. in in Russia, but they had slightly different takes on what they wanted and what they what they didn't want, which sometimes brought them into conflict with each other. And so, well, this is one thing, I, 
I, I want to lead from that into, into a question I've been thinking about is how to interpret all of this, how to interpret all of these connections, like what was really going on. So, so, um, just to, to throw out a few really kind of simplistic interpretations that people might take. And I think you talk about this at the beginning of the book that people might take from looking at all these connections. You say, you can say, okay, well, we have these, all these millionaire socialists, for instance, all these socialist billionaires. So were they, were they supporting revolutionaries, not just the Bolsheviks, out of a kind of ideological support for the cause? Um, were they, that's one, that might be one interpretation. Another interpretation is that you just have a bunch of greedy Wall Street bankers who just want to get into Russia to make a whole lot of money. And then you've got, um, then you've got all the conflicting things where you don't know who's working for who and, and who's, who's, who, uh, who's a double agent, who's working, like who has, is pretending to have one motivation, who, who has another. So is there any way that you could, uh, or how do you prefer to look at it? Like, how do you prefer to, to encapsulate it in, um, in a way that kind of makes as much sense of everything going on as possible? Or is it just a matter of, well, it's complicated and you've got to like, you've got to read all the details to, to get any idea of what's going on. Well, the most important thing, the, the, the bottom line in, in most of this is not everybody's motivation, but it's the single most important one is money. So it's, I think at some point in the book towards the end, I say, you know, look, if you want to understand why you would have, you know, what's the largest motivation as to why American capitalists, the Charles Schwab's, you know, the William Boyce Thompson's, the Charles Cranes would, would actively embrace and subsidize revolution uh, you know, to some degree, I think for some of them, there, there was either an, an, a kind of ideological attraction to it, maybe almost a kind of romantic attraction, but it's never inseparable from money. And, and, and remember, that's what drives these people. That's how God, that's, 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 that's the whole reason they exist. And, and what you're always looking for in well i mean let, let's simply look at what is what is the essential element in capitalism and you know the way that a lot of people would answer that is well capitalism makes things you know it manufactures things you know automobiles um runs you know operates railroads it's all it's all about producing things for people but that i think is wrong what capitalism is about is creating more capital. The only real product of capitalism, the ultimate product, is capital, more money. Money to create more money, which can then be invested to make more money. So whatever you're doing to create that money, you know, whether you're running railroads or producing widgets or thingamabobs or whatever they are, they're not terribly important. You can always, you know, that's where you find corporations diversifying in what they're doing. They might start out doing one thing, they'll do something else, because it's all about the creation of more capital. And the, it, it must be profitable. The other thing about uh, capital, the way you do this is that you, you invest. And that means you, and in all investments, you know, your stockbroker will tell you this, there's the element of risk. When you invest, you're gambling in some ways. 
So you're taking your capital and you're putting that capital into something. You're investing it, which you will hope will create more capital. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. So if you simply think of it in that terms, one, if, if, if capital is simply this resource which is used to invest in something with the idea of creating more capital, a revolution, or as we like to call it today, regime change, can be a very profitable thing to invest in. Because that will then give you, you know, if you help, if you have in some way assisted a new regime coming into power, well, that voids all the deals with the old regime. So now you can make new deals on better terms, hopefully. Uh, and, and, you know, you'll make money off of it. You know, mm-hmm. Hopefully it will work. Maybe it mm-hmm. won't if it goes. I mean, you know, you can always have another regime change if you don't like it. That's um, and. That, I, you know, I think in some ways that's what you can actually see in the Russian case. You know, the idea that, well, you know, the czarist regime is is backward and inefficient. That that's that's what often you would get the and for instance, you mentioned there's the American industrialist Charles Crane, which you know most people know. You want to connect Charles Crane with a, with a product. Um, the next time you go into a public laboratory, look for Crane in the urinal. All right, that's the, the so the Crane company famously produced uh, bathroom devices, but it mostly produced uh, pipes and fittings brake shoes, a whole variety of things, very diverse corporation. And Charles Crane was, um, Charles Crane, an interesting example of an early 20th century plutocratic liberal. That is, he was someone who basically inherited a fortune. He didn't make one. He was never terribly interested in business that I could see. The business kind of ran itself. But he's one of these people and I think you can see a lot of modern equivalents of this if you look around. He's one of those people who had, who found himself as one of these blessed human beings with a huge amount of wealth at his disposal. I mean, n- not many people have that. And you have to think about, you know, today or at any time, how actually rare among the human species people who command huge amounts of wealth are. Because the most majority of human beings are and always have been relatively poor. But imagine you find yourself with more money than you know how to spend. I don't know. Maybe Bill Gates feels this way when he wakes up in the morning. So why is that? You mean, at some point you have to ask yourself this question. Why do I have all of this money? Well, I don't know. One simple answer is that, well, it must be the will of God, okay? Providence, the cosmic muffin, whatever you want to call it. I have all of this. And and this, I have all of this because I must to achieve something with it. And that's what Crane wanted to do. Crane was one of these people who inherited a lot of money, had a variety of what might be called altruistic ideas, and then came to believe that somehow his wealth had given him the task in life of improving the world and therefore of supporting or subsidizing the things that he thinks he would do. So that's why he becomes a huge supporter of Woodrow Wilson's campaign. You know, he's, he's going, he backs political candidates. Well, he goes in and finds political candidates and funds their way into office. You know, the guy who would essentially pay for much of, of the campaign. And then that, of course, grants him access 
So one of the things that Charles Crane did, just one of the things that he did was that he was, you know, very important in putting Woodrow Wilson into office and keeping him there through the First World War. So he was very close to the Wilson administration. Crane's son had a job in the State Department. Crane himself had no official position whatsoever. I want to emphasize that he was a man who was never elected to a public office, never held any kind of appointed position, but he had a huge amount of influence. I mean, Crane, through the Wilson administration, had a direct influence on American foreign policy towards Russia. His views were consulted and they were followed, and he was sent on what were, in essence, diplomatic missions under the cover of private business ventures. And one of the things I describe in the book is that, you know, well after the revolution in the early 20s, Crane, you know, goes into China, essentially charters his own private train, which you can do if you have a lot of money, and then just goes into, you know, actually goes into Bolshevik Russia, travels across Siberia, goes to Moscow, engages in high-level negotiations with the Soviet government, which, among other things, result in a number of Americans who were in Bolshevik jails being freed. And he does this purely as an ostensibly private individual. Yet everything he does is being communicated back and forth to people in Washington. It's a kind of you know, capitalist diplomacy in this case. But Crane had a very long, you know, he, he believed that his money had given him the ability to shape the world. And therefore, you find, you know, he was willing to do things, uh, you know, in earlier years, he, he'd subsidized revolutionary movements in the Balkans. So this was back when the Ottoman Empire was collapsing and you had various, you know, you had a thing called IMRO, the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, um, which was, which was a, a nationalist movement which was fighting the Turks, you know, had guerrilla armies operating around, was conducting things that might be called, I don't know, terrorism. And and Crane decided, these are the good guys. I like these guys, you know, they're 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 on the side of history. And so I'm going to give them lots of money to, you know, assassinate more Ottoman officials and and you know buy weapons. Because I have the money to do so. He also came to the conclusion for his own that uh, the regime of Tsar Nicholas in Russia was backward and inefficient and illiberal and should be removed from the face of the earth and replaced with a more democratic regime. And therefore, Crane befriended Russian, you know, anti-Tsarists of all political stripes, revolutionaries, liberals, etc. So long as they opposed the existing regime. He brought them to the U.S. on speaking tours. He promoted their work. Um, you know, Charles Crane became a cheerleader for political change within Russia. So, you know, he was really happy when, when the Tsar was overthrown in March 1917. Because that sort of then opened the, the possibility towards to, to create, you know, he then seemed to be the ability to create the kind of sort of imitation of America in Russia. That was, you know, Crane very much, his, his, his views, you know, he was again a, a early 20th century traditional American liberal in his views, and therefore Russia would become more advanced and more progressive and a better place the more its political system in some way resembled 
the one in the United States. You know, it sounds good, democracy, and yes, but also remember what he's talking about is a political system in which rich men like him buy politicians and put them into office. That's, you know, that was democracy. But that's the way things ought to be. Um, I mean, that's, if you look at this very close, oh, you know, what Crane believed was that uh, good regimes were regimes who were run by people like him because he had the right ideas. He was the epitome of, of progressive of a progressive mindset and therefore whatever he favored personally was good and therefore the politicians he favored in russia were good uh that now compare him to the other uh, american uh, in this case a banker a financier not you know crane's an industrialist jacob schiff is a banker jacob schiff makes his money off of an investment banker Schiff basically and his bank of Kuhn Loeb made their money. What made them important was that they financed railway development. That's what they did. And, you know, railroads were a big deal in late 19th, early 20th century America. That's what kept the country moving. Schiff, on the other hand, um, you know, Schiff was uh, born in Germany. Um, he was a Jew. Uh, and he was deeply committed to the promotion of the welfare of Jews in America and in Europe and elsewhere. And one of the things that just stuck in Jacob Schiff's craw was that Jews were persecuted in Russia. Now, true, he'd never been in Russia, never set a foot in the country, but he nevertheless viewed, now here again, I, I have a great deal of wealth. Uh, and I, and so one of the ways he expressed that is that he subsidized every charity, especially Jewish charities around. It, it's also, by the way, a thing you can find still commonplace today. One of the ways in which, let's say, the capitalist elite often justify their positions is that they become philanthropists. Okay, they're always full. I mean, look, you know, Rockefeller is a philanthropist. Carnegie was a ph philanthropist. You know, find some filthy rich American plutocrat in the early 20th century or today who isn't a philanthropist, who set up funds. Okay, it's the Bill and Melissa Gates, or it was fund. Okay, we're gonna and we're gonna throw money at all kinds of things to show what wonderful. And and this isn't to argue that this isn't motivated by a, a real desire to to do good as they see it. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to piss on philanthropy. It's, it's a good thing. But it comes back to, uh, to me, the perhaps unpleasant but very true statement that there is no such thing as an unselfish act. Okay? That living creatures just don't do things that way. There always has to be some kind of payoff. So one of the things you do by being rich, you know, which often makes people hate you, uh, is to win public favor to make yourself a, a kind of indispensable character by distributing large amounts of money. I mean, even Pablo Escobar understood that. All right. Now, I, I may be, I, know, I might be a psychopathic gangster and a drug dealer, but what I do is that I take some of the money I earn and I distribute it around the village and the people and, make, and make people dependent upon me. That's one of the things that, you know, that philanthropy can do. It can do a great deal of good, but it creates goodwill and it makes people dependent upon you. 
So one of the things about Schiff is that Schiff basically controlled most of the Jewish philanthropies in the United States. And if you were going to try to start one and he wasn't involved in it, he would want to be there. So he was, you know, but he was a businessman. He was a banker. He was very practical. But on the, you know, just as Charles Crane sort of envisioned turning Russia into a, a, a kind of liberal model of, of the United States, what Jacob Schiff wanted to do was to stop the persecution of Jews in Russia. He just couldn't stand. And it became a kind of, you know, again, even though he had never met Nicholas II of Russia, he had decided that that man represents everything. He and his regime are an evil. And therefore, I want to get rid of that evil. And therefore, I will support anyone who opposes him. And so Schiff, who is not a revolutionary, okay, there's there's not a there's not a radical bone in Jacob Schiff's body. <clears throat> but you don't find that in business or in his personal life. But if there were people out there who wanted to blow up Tsar Nicholas, if there were people out there who were working to undermine a regime that he believed was wicked. Yeah, he'd give them money, and he did. So Schiff, you know, when uh, <clears throat> one of the best examples of that I note in the book is that when Russia and Japan went to war in 1904 and 1905, a war which proved to be disastrous for Russia and sparked an abortive revolution, one of the ways in which Japan was able to fight that war, in fact, the only way they were able to fight that war is that they had to raise basically $250 million in foreign loans. Who helped them do that? Who helped them raise most of those loans in New York? Jacob Schiff. I mean, Jacob Schiff was the man who essentially helped finance the Japanese war effort against Russia. Not because he loved Japan, but because he was determined to do as much as he could to undermine or harm what he viewed as an evil regime, which he wished to destroy because of his policies. And beyond that, he also, there were Russian revolutionaries who came to him and go, you know, we can help. If you, if you gave us money to print propaganda that we can distribute among Russian prisoners of war or Russian troops, that would help too. Okay. Okay. You know, I'm a capitalist banker. I'll give money to Marxists who theoretically want to destroy everything I stand for, because now what they want to do is to undermine a regime and a leader that I oppose. Mm -hmm. So this is how you end up with an American banker, Jacob Schiff, and you end up with an American industrialist, Charles Crane, both working and using their money to help undermine a foreign regime for different reasons, but with the same aim in mind. Rick. Well, I just wanted to say that in hindsight, these were very uh, short-sighted um, goals that these individuals had because uh, not only did the very um, essence or, or uh, ideology of, uh, of communism um, go strictly against their MO and what they wanted to accomplish, but ultimately, they were, when Stalin uh, took power, as you point out towards the end of the book, uh, he, he, was, he was kicking out the Western capitalist uh, 
uh, industrial influence. He only wanted to hire uh, Western um, people with know-how for their uh, ability to consult on certain projects. And ultimately, you know, the, the, the titans of, of Western capitalism were unable to get the, the very foothold into Russia that they had thought that they might get by implementing all of these intrigues and, uh, and you know, propping up these figures. So uh, that's very interesting to me. And connected to that, Rick, I was just thinking that the, um, you know, Jacob Schiff, an incredibly interesting figure who, who was in part responsible for the creation of the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and the greater centralization of financial power uh, in the U.S. and in the Western world, um, you know, there was the, these same interests seem to be, uh, to some degree, so many decades later, also against the, the, the sovereignty, the, the autonomy of Russia. It's as though, you know, if, if history doesn't exactly repeat itself, it certainly does rhyme. It certainly does seem as though, you know, the, the same impetus to, to suppress and subject and, and uh, subvert and, and, uh, is still there to some great degree. Well, there's still the profit motive. There's still, the, I mean, one of the things that <clears throat> that that Russia represented in the early 20th century, and yeah, you know, and still represents, is that it's still the biggest country on earth. It, it's still basically you know, one sixth of the world's land area, and within that, there's a huge amount of resources much of which have still yet to be exploited. I mean, uh, just look at, I mean, look today at an example as to how dependent Western Europe is on Russian gas and oil. It's, it's, it's one of the huge advantage things because they can literally freeze Germany if they cut off the gas. Of course, they're going to lose the money they would get for that. But there's this relationship bet between the two, this, this practical relationship between them. So think of it this way. What would you rather do? Would you rather want to keep buying gas from the Russians and then, you know, always have the implicit threat that at some point they can shut off the gas? Or would you just rather go in and take it control of it yourself? You know, break the whole thing up into a bunch of small, dependent, impoverished countries that do nothing but produce gas for us, and of course, grant concessions to all of our people to go in and run them. That's what, I mean, that in essence, if you look not just at American interests, but British and German, is what they all wanted to do was to control Russia's resources. That's what we want to do, because if we can control all of these resources, well, you know, you've heard the heartland theory. You control the heartland, you control the world. Well, the only reason you want to control the heartland is because of its resources. So we get our hands on all of that stuff, hands on all of that stuff that, by the way, the Russians don't appear to be developing very effectively. And But this is one of the arguments against the czar. The czarist regime was, was backward and inefficient, and they're just not exploiting their resources, damn it. So you see, if we just went in there with good old American know-how, I mean, look, we've tamed the West 
we've drilled holes all over Nevada. Look at all the gold and silver and the railroads that we built. Well, we could go in there and do a much better job running the place than they could. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that that's one of the, you know, somewhere in Charles Crane's mind, I think that's the whole idea. Is if you just put me in charge of this, I could make it run a lot more efficiently. So, again, as I said before, at the bottom line, it comes down to greed. It comes down to the desire for more wealth and the power that comes with it. And you're absolutely right. That fundamentally hasn't changed today because Russia still is often seen by many people as having an unfair share of all of this wealth and all of these resources that we could do so much more with and that we could then use to control. Mm. So control mm. Russia's gas and oil and you control Europe. So who's going to do that? Are the Russians going to do it? Are the Germans going to do it? Are the Americans going to do it? The Swiss? Who knows? Well, one of the, for some reason, that just made me think of one of the figures in your book that I wasn't expecting to find there. I I wasn't, I wasn't aware of this, this part of Mark Twain's history, that he was involved in a lot of the, uh, well, these, some of these anti-Russian or anti-Tsarist organizations, and he was kind of a, a bit of a propagandist about the, about the cause. I mean, he, he, tra- Twain's writings and like views on, on Russia in the early 1900s could probably be on CNN today. And, uh, you know, there wouldn't, wouldn't be that much of a difference, but, um, well, I don't, I don't necessarily want to talk about Mark Twain, unless you have something interesting to say about that. What I did want to ask about was well th- think about that for a second we'll come back to it um yeah. when looking at these figures like um like schiff and like crane so crane for instance he's uh, almost like this almost utopian vision or and this self-congratulatory um kind of view of himself as as well we'll go in there and we'll make it better we'll we'll make russia a better place and a lot of these guys that were supporting the revolutionaries seemed to be pretty happy when there was, you know, a liberal revolution um, in Russia before the Bolshevik revolution. They they probably would have been fine if those original liberals had stayed in power and the Bolsheviks had never come into play. If you know, if, if certain, if they could get their money, essentially. What I'm what I'm getting at with with that is that I think there's the potential for a kind of hindsight bias when looking at the at wall street wall street american british support for for these revolutionaries that they must have known the way things were going to go that they must have known okay well we'll, we'll support these guys and then there's going to be a huge revol- a huge communist revolution and things are going to there's going to be a giant civil war and then we're going to have the cold war and we're going to have this type of government blah 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 it's like i don't even think that entered into the into the minds of any of these people it did seem like Alan was saying that this is a short-sighted it's like okay um a short-sighted um project and where we don't like this government we think that we can make a lot of money if that government isn't there anymore so we're going to get rid of that government and that's kind of where the thinking stops because and then, and then it's just a matter of oh well if this if these guys take over great we'll try to get deals with them if those other guys get get into power. We'll try to make deals with them. And we'll, we'll have our tendrils in, in, uh, and our, our, our like private intelligence networks in all of those groups anyways, from the beginning so that we can hedge our bets and whichever one gets in, we'll be making money, but it's not like they planned the communist revolution. Right. Um, I was wondering if you, if you had any thoughts on that, on, um, 
Well, I think that comes back to your to your interpretation of like greed is the primary motive going uh, going along with this. It's not that well that any number of that the revolution could have gone any number of ways. Regime change could have gone any number of ways. It could have been a revolution from above, like a liberal putsch, or it could have been or it could have been like it was a a, a massive um, revolution from below that just completely destroyed the the existing government and, and social structure. Um, but when it comes down to it, none of that really mattered because all, all of these, all of these wall street, um, kind of intrigues were after was making money, right? W would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, making money is the key. I mean, that's, that's what you do. Okay. If, if you're, if you're a capitalist, that's, that's why you're a capitalist to make money. It's, it's a, um, um, Give an example from uh, uh, a fellow who was who was at work for a company who was involved in a labor dispute, okay, and, and the type of thing. And, and so he was on he was on the union side of the question, and he was and he was negotiating, and you know, of course, from the union, you know, negotiating a labor contract. And what he wants is you know, you know, better more money for the worker. Okay, we, we want one hour people to get you know two dollars more an hour. We want extended vacations, health care, the rest of that. And, 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 you know, he said later, you know, his idea was, you know, the company was there basically to provide, to provide jobs, you know, and at some point he's talking to people and he goes, well, you know, you're here, you're providing jobs for people. Don't you want to provide decent jobs? You know, don't you, don't you want to have a, a happy, healthy workforce? And he said, it was at that time that the guy on the other side explained to him and he goes, you know, you, you seem to misunderstand about this. This, this company isn't here to provide jobs. It's not even here to specifically provide products. It's here to make dividends for its shareholders. Mm -hmm. The only people that the company is responsible to is not its workers. Workers are just a resource that are hired, you know, which we hire for as little as we can pay. Because our whole point, the reason that we exist, what we have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility, is to make money for our shareholders. And if there is a, you know, if, if it's going to mean that we're going to have to uh, cut wages in order to increase profits for the shareholders, that's because that's what we're here. I mean, otherwise, you know, his idea was you don't really understand what a business is. You don't understand. We're not a philanthropy. We're not here to provide people with jobs. We are here to make profit for our shareholders. And so my friend said, you know, that was the first time he really sort of realized what he was dealing with. That that was, you know, and, and, and it's one of those things which, again, I don't mean to express that, that that's some sort of an evil. It, it's just eminently practical. Now, in some ways, it's, it, it's like expecting a leopard not to be a carnivore. Right? If you're dealing with a leopard, what are you dealing with? You are dealing with a carnivorous animal, okay, which has to feed itself, and it has only one way of doing that, and it can't eat kale. All right, that's not going to work. It has to consume flesh and blood, and that may well be yours, or may well be something else. So once you know what you're dealing with, then you can do it practically. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that off, people often get, they imagine they're dealing with one thing and they're dealing with something else. 
uh, or they, you know, they're dealing with a carnivore, but they like to imagine it as a vegetarian. And, and you know, it, your policies are going to be completely off. But you know, you brought up this interesting thing about well, what do you know? What do you think is going to happen if you, you know, if you, if we, if we put Marxist revolutionaries in, in the country, you know, if we, if we create a regime change which is going to put these Marxists in control of it, then what do we think is going? To, again, what do you think is going to happen? If you, you're now putting people in the power who've argued that their whole idea is to eradicate capitalism from the face of the earth, well, you know, might that be kind of self-defeating? Well, keep in mind, before the you know, before Lenin and his crew take power, there hadn't been any socialist governments. Socialism had been around for decades. I mean, there had been a socialist movement in Europe through most of the 19th century. There was the second international, you know, socialist parties, you know, labor parties, socialist parties were, were, were becoming large parties. They were becoming very influential, but they never held power anywhere. Socialists had never governed a country. There was no historical example of what socialists would actually do if they were in power. So you didn't really know. You knew their theories, you know, what they theoretically believed. And the other thing to keep in mind is that American capital had been battling, in a sense, you know, in its battle against unionization, you know, and all of the, and, and you know, the period from the 1890s up through World War I and beyond is, is one of labor wars, you know, you know. Think of it this way. One of the things that uh, American companies, you know, mining firms and others were, were, were essentially battling, which there was a real war in the American West with, with the international workers of the world, the IWW. So the United States spawned one of the most radical anti-capitalist movements in the world at that time in the IWW. But what have they learned about that? I mean, you know, what, what was American capitalism experience in dealing with, uh, you know, Marxist radicals? Well, one was that we can beat them and control them because they always lost. I mean, they had some success, but, you know, the Wobblies failed, okay? American Socialist Party did not overthrow capitalism. Capitalism always had more money at its disposal. They could always hire scabs, they could hire Pinkertons. And so these pesky Marxist revolutionaries could be a problem, but from the standpoint of much of America, they were, they were, they were a problem we could kind of deal with. And, and one of the ways you could deal with is because, you know, behind the scenes, the reality was there are always people you could buy off. Okay, there are always people in these lanes. But it, it, and it, but it goes back again to the way in which you did business. So you got to do business. There are people you compete with, but the people you compete with the next day might be someone you would need to go. You don't have to like them. Okay? Doing business with people has nothing to do with liking them. It has nothing to do with friendship. In fact, that will get in the way of things. You should never make business decisions based upon emotion or upon friendship. You shouldn't do something because this, you know, that, that, that's a favor you do to a friend. Business is business. You know, I mean, let's look at the, the most basic business of all, organized crime. And that's why you always have this thing. Remember, it's nothing personal. It's just business. And in business, you have to set the personal aside. You might have to screw over or even kill somebody you like, but that's business. 
That's all about the bottom line. It's about producing profits for your shareholders. So in business, as a practical necessity, you have to de- you have to do business, make deals with people that otherwise you might detest and might be completely different, have different values than you do. But you know, you work together to make profit for each other. Or you oppose each other in order to create that. So business was all about making deals. It it wasn't about friendship. It wasn't even necessarily about trust. It was about the need for, for mutual cooperation in search of mutual benefit or profit. So the, all, the whole mindset of business was that, look, you know, whatever these people say, they're going to have to do business, right? We all have to eat. And the thing was, is that in, in dealing with the communist regime that Lenin set up, you know, initially, they, they proved to be quite right in that degree. Because you have to look again at what happened is that Bolsheviks come into power, they fight a civil war, and they introduce a thing called war communism. And war communism, you know, it, it was the, the, the crudest sort of economy. You abolish money. Uh, there's supposed to be a centralized distribution of goods and food. You don't work, you don't eat. Uh, you, you essentially militarize labor. And you reduce the economy down to the most basic elements. You know, production in some cases, you use, you use force in, in order to achieve things. Uh, you control people by the distribution of food and products. And as crude as that was, even though most of the Russian economy collapsed, keep in mind, Bolsheviks survived. It worked. War communism kept the essential elements, which was essentially military production around, and that's why they won the Civil War. But then they were faced by the fact that they had a completely ruined economy. The railroads had been ruined, the oil refineries had broken down, the whole place was a mess. And then that part of that was their fault, and part of that was the fault of the war that preceded it. I mean, the currency was destroyed, the ruble was worthless. That all started when the czarists and then provisional government just printed paper rubles like crazy to, to finance the war. But the Bolsheviks had inherited all of that. And they now had to find a way to make things be. So what happened is that in 1921, when the Civil War is over, and, they, and they've politically won, they make concessions. And, and they, the concessions are that Lenin introduces, against, by the way, the, the objection of people like Trotsky and others, a thing he called the new economic policy. And the new economic policy essentially gave the land back to the peasants, you know, let, you know, basically let peasants lease land, grow crops, sell those crops in the open market. It, it privatized agriculture. Got, got peasant revolts off their back. But then it did two other things. It restored retail trade in the country and therefore creates a whole, you know, or restores a class of kind of petty capitalists. You could open private businesses, hire people to work for you. But then most importantly, you made a deal with all of these foreign capitals, some of who before had been, you know, 
funding white armies to destroy you. And you did that by offering concessions to foreign companies. So this meant, for instance, that the Russian oil industry, which had been one of the biggest in the world, was now in ruins. And you know, in, inside the country, we just don't have means to produce the pipes and the equipment to restore this. But the Americans do. And keep in mind that this no, but you know, American companies knew more about drilling for oil than anybody in the world. So what we'll do is we'll offer a concession to something like the International Barnsdale Corporation that specializes in oil field equipment, pipelines. And we'll say, look, you come in, we'll grant you a concession to restore, to bring in your engineers and equipment and to restore all of the pipelines and refineries in the Caucasus to get the oil industry going. And then you run it for us and we'll split the profits 50-50. That's a good deal. I mean, you're going you're to offer them, you know, yeah, that's it. And, and furthermore, we'll, and when we give it to you, there won't be any competition. So one of the things that did, if you just look at oil, American oil companies and others were just falling over each other and doing everything they could to get these concessions because, they, because it was tremendously profitable. So whether it was Royal Dutch Shell in Europe or whether it was Standard Oil here, Standard Oil in New York, Chevron in California, they would lie, cheat, steal, sell their grandmothers, walk over their children in order to get those concessions because that's what's going to get it money. And that, of course, then got the foreign money that had been funding your political opponents off your back because now you're making your regime potentially profitable. And so the concessions were granted and they worked pretty well for a while. But at that point, you know, in, in, 19, see, in 19, when the NEP came along, there were people in London and especially in New York who would argue, see, what we said was going to happen was happen. Whatever sort of radical rhetoric these people had, all their chatter about wiping capitalism off the face of the earth, see, they've just admitted that they can't survive without us. Because now they're essentially begging us to bring in our money and our resources and our technical expertise, all the stuff we have to help them rebuild their economy. See, they're coming back into line. And things might have gone that way for a while. You know, once and again, it appeared that from the international, you know, capitalist, you know, what I would call the... Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion later, the communist international, the common turn, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, the, of, 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 you know, but because the whole Leninist view was that there was only one communist party everywhere. So the American communist party, the Bolivian communist party and the Russian communist party were all part of a single international movement, the communist international. Well, on the other side, there's the cap and turn, and there still is. There's the capitalist international. The idea that whatever the differences, you know, in which national differences really don't matter, what matters is business connections and, and mutual profit. So the cap and turn is still very much alive. But if you look back in 1921, when Lenin, you know, seemed to cave and bring in the NEP, the cap and turn can argue we have won. And, but again, I think, you know, greed and expectations tended to 
kind of blind them to the process. Here's an interesting example of how one of these very profitable or seemingly profitable concessions came to an end very quickly. So one of the other industries the uh, Soviet government wanted to restore was the gold mining industry. And there have been a lot, particularly placer mining in Siberia. So they needed, again, foreign companies to come in and bring their engineers and get the, get the gold industry moving again. So they created this thing called um, the, uh, the, uh, the Russian, you know, the, the, the Lena Goldfields concessions was, was primarily British. There were also American investors that were involved in this as well. But it was, and what they did is this, this foreign concession came in and took over the gold mines and got them running again. Now, the agreement was made this way. And it's, it's this pretty standard agreement. We're going to hire your company to come in and restore and manage our gold mines. And we'll split the profits. But you have to guarantee, and you would see, that you have to maintain a certain minimum production of gold per year, right? Because if you're going to run them, you have to you know, have to produce a certain amount of gold. So every year, I don't know, you have to produce a, a hundred million gold rubles worth of gold that will come out of the mines. If you don't, if you fall behind, if you don't meet the production quotas, then the concession will be terminated and everything will revert back to the Soviet government. So we're going to hire you to manage it, but you have to manage it well. So you come in, you set everything up, but of course you have to hire local labor, right? So you're dealing with the various uh, Russian Soviet labor you're dealing with. And Soviet labor is, of course, since this is the USSR, is organized into labor unions. Now, they aren't really independent labor unions, but they are labor unions. So you then have to negotiate a contract with your workers for wages, hours, etc. Well, everything seemed to be going pretty well until at some point, and this again is as Stalin the Senate rises, the idea was that, you know, uh, the foreigners have sort of fulfilled their purpose. That is, they've come in, they've got the mines running, they've got the equipment going. So then at some point you begin to realize other than splitting the profits with these guys, why do we really need them? So what happened to this profitable concession? Labor troubles. The workers went on strike for higher wages. How much higher wages? 15 times what they were currently making. That's what they wanted because the company could afford it. Company could afford it. He was now faced with a strike. So what do you do? You go to the Soviet officials and go, look, uh, the workers are on strike, we, 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 but there's no production coming out. Uh, we're not going to be able to meet our quota this year. So big government's idea is that, well, you know, this is the is a great proletarian republic. And here, workers are free to negotiate their own contracts. And so if you got labor troubles, that you're going to have to work it out with them. We can't do anything about it at all. Now, of course, that wasn't true. <laughs> the, the Soviet government was instigating the whole thing. The unions simply did whatever they told them to, but they could argue, no, we can't do anything about it. We can't intervene in this. You know, workers are sovereign. You'll have to work it out with them. But, you know, if you don't get production going again, uh, we'll have to come in and uh, terminate the contract. And so guess what happened? Strike shut down production. Contract was voided. Soviet government coming and took over the whole thing under the terms of the contract 
which you had previously signed. Because some way or another, blinded by greed and all the little, you know, gold dancing in your eyes, you never really figured out how you might get screwed over with this. Did the workers get their raise? Uh, no. <laughs> because the people who would have paid it to them, <laughs> I think, I'm not sure, I think actually when it went back under Soviet management, the wages were lower. So there you go. Yeah, typical. <laughs> See, now... But, but but see once but then the argument is is that uh, you know once once Soviet authorities are back in charge that it's the worker state and therefore you can't really strike against your own interest can you, mm-hmm. comrade? Precisely. Okay. This is the worker state and you are the workers and therefore if you go on strike you're just going on strike against yourself, and also we'll send you to the gulag. So get to work. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Rick, um, we've been going almost an hour and a half, so I want to maybe just ask one or two final questions. First, did you have a did you have another one, Elon? Uh, just real quickly, actually, um, we had a Gary uh, Lachlan on the show. Uh, Lachman. L- Lachman, thank you. Um, yeah. The yeah. Return of Holy Russia, which. Uh, which is a book he authored uh, in the past couple of years, Rick. And, um, yeah, and you guys probably, you have some similar interests, interests, right? With the occult and. Uh, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, that's usually what I connect him with. Yeah. I, you yeah. know, it, it seemed like there was so much in your uh, book uh, that, um, that fit in well or complemented Gary's, uh, you know, his where, you know, it, it takes on a more kind of, socio-religious, cultural um, perspective. Yours, a more uh, political, um, financial, economic. Spooky. A, a spooky dimension to the whole thing. Um, but, but like one of the things that I think the two books have in great common is, you know, the, uh, the sense that, that, that this um, revolutionary fervor has been brewing for a very long time in Russia prior to when the actual events of uh, 1905 and 1917 occur, approximately. And um, there is a, uh, and you know, some of the causes of that seem to be legitimate. The czar wasn't handling things probably as well as he could. There was some level of reason to be resentful towards uh, any pogroms and and um, and unfairness uh, against Jews uh, for a number of decades. By the same token, there seems to have been something um, of a uh, socio-cultural development in this in this uh, radical liberal revolutionary fervor that was building up for decades. And I wonder if. Uh, um, you know, right now there's a, a very popular term used in a different context called mass uh, psychosis formation, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any any thoughts about um, the kind of uh, um, insidiousness or uh, destructiveness or um, suicidal nature of of that development. Uh, as a political ideology, as a socio-political development, that the revolutionary fervor, the revolutionary fervor. Any any thoughts about 
um, what that was. Like, how did, how did it finally in 1918 or 17, it, it caught on, uh, and had become this kind of, uh, overwhelming force of destruction. Um, you know, eating its own tail, looting its own treasures, destroying its own culture. Uh, any, any thoughts as to what, what, what that all was? Is it a collective madness? Well, kind of. Collective madness is, is the term for it, but I'm not sure this is exclusive to Russia, but two of the things you can see there is there, there are really two things that seem to be working in tandem. Or which which create a um, a symbiotic relationship between them somehow combined, and one of them is you got the kind of revolutionary elite. That is, you, you have the people, and the relatively small proportion of people who actually belonged. I mean, there weren't hordes and hordes of revolutionaries. I mean, the Russian Empire. Well, you know, nineteen seventeen. You're talking about an empire of 180 million people. If you look at the, you know, the Bolsheviks, when they take power, uh, maybe have a quarter of a million members. And out of that quarter of a million, I would bet that there were maybe 50,000 who were actually fully committed to it, and the others were just kind of hangers-on. You know, the other, you know, you could add in the SRs and other groups, but out of 180 million people, you never had anywhere even close to a million that were actually actively involved in revolutionary movements. I mean, most people in Russia did what most people do everywhere. They got up in the morning, fed the cows, whatever. I mean, I mean, most people were just preoccupied with staying alive. And when you keep in mind, this was a country in which the you know eighty percent of the people were subsistence farmers. Well, that's what you have to do. You don't have much time for the rest of this. So the people, you know, where did people become revolutionaries? You went to a university. That's how you became a revolutionary. In fact, I don't think I've run across you know. Some of them would be, you know, you, you might, you know, there were workers and so on. But look at who Lenin is a hereditary nobleman. Okay, his father, you know, it's not all that fancy as it sounds. You know, his father was promoted to the rank of hereditary nobility because of his work basically as a school superintendent, but he's a government employee. They're educated. Trotsky, I was just talking about it. Trotsky's father is, you know, often described as a wealthy, but he was too, was a wealthy businessman. And remember, he's got all these millionaire uncles. <laughs> and if you look at the rest of them, I, I once did this sort of, if you look at the, the Bolshevik leadership at that time, you don't really find many real workers or peasants. You mostly find people from the educated middle and upper classes. Managerial. And the one common denominator is that overwhelmingly they, they became revolutionaries when they sought higher education. And yeah, that, that led at least one czarist official to argue is that if we want to stop the growth of revolutionary movement, then what we need to do is just close the universities. Okay, because that's where they're all coming from. Okay, they go there. And what that did, I mean, you know, what, what getting an education did is that it made people aware of inequities and things that they weren't aware of previously. You know, I mean, you know, when you're living in some impoverished village somewhere, you don't know you're impoverished because everybody's that way. That's just normal. It's only when eventually you go somewhere and you see that, you know, I, you know, I, I'm apparently just being completely screwed over. All right. There are all these people who have money and I have nothing. That's what will lead someone to join 
a revolution. So at the top, you have people who are not really from the impoverished masses. I mean, they're, they're generally from either the upper or the privileged, educated or semi-educated middle classes. And one of the things which is often a, a common element in those classes, somebody once said that the, the single most important psychological trait of the bourgeoisie is resentment. Middle classes resent. Okay? They resent two things. One, they resent the people above them who are richer than they are. And you also resent the people below who you often simply view as being lazy and stupid. See, they're lazy and stupid because we rose out of that, and we can't rise any higher because there are all these rich parasites above us. So it's a perfect ingredient for growing that to create a certain you know, sense of a chip on your shoulder about one thing or another. And you know, Lenin's case is that even though Lenin was a hereditary nobleman, the fact was is that, that nobleman nobility didn't get him anything. It meant nothing. His family wasn't rich. They were just well off. They were, you know, because again, his father was, was a government bureaucrat. Uh, Lenin was looking forward to what? Uh, an education to become a lawyer, you know, so you can go in and basically represent other rich people in court cases. So if you've got any kind of, well, especially if you're a psychopath with ambition, that's not very satisfactory. You want to have more. And the only way that you can get more is to get rid of the people above you. And the only way that you can get rid of the people above you is to get the people below you to push you into that. So you've got this group that that's, this kind of manipulates things. It always leads it. And they're almost always the people who were kind of leading before. So it's, you know. Uh, the the elite tends to simply is replaced with another elite. But then below that, in, in Russia in particular, you've got this long kind of simmering resentment in the mass population. So again, it goes back to that central, the central the Russian peasantry. So the Russian peasantry, again, were basically subsistence farmers. A few generations before, most of them had been serfs. They had been slaves, literally. They were, they were owned as property. So, you know, if you're a peasant in that situation, what is it you know? Well, one of the things that you learn how to do is survive. And it's one of the things, which I still think is, is a, has a very strong influence in Russian society to this day, especially when you do things like threaten them with economic sanctions. They've been through a lot of stuff. Okay. There's the real memory of that. All right. Um, World War II might be one, one, one example. There's, there's this whole, you know, Russian history in some ways is this kind of constant series of disasters, which somehow we managed to survive. So, you know, the Mongols were thrown at us, Napoleon invaded us. Hitler invaded is all of this stuff has come along and they're all gone and we're still here. So now you're going to threaten us with something. All right. So starvation. Well, we've done the starvation thing. So, but among the peasantry, there was this idea that peasantry basically just kind of lived on their own. I mean, this is the way you can make a revolutionary appeal to the peasantry. What does the czar's government do for you? 
does two things. It taxes you and it conscripts you into his armies. Other than that, it doesn't feed you, doesn't provide any real way, doesn't provide much in the way of education or the rest of it. You manage your life on your own. If there was no czar or if there was no government, would you be worse off or better off? You wouldn't have to pay all of those taxes. You wouldn't have to pay them for the land that your family has already worked for 500 years anyway. So the, 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 the kind of basic revolutionary appeal there was a kind of anarchist appeal. I mean, the, to me, the real, the, the real essence of Russian radicalism is a kind of anarchism. The concept that we could just live better on our own. You know, we could, and, and you know, the peasants have pretty much done that. You know, they they lived their traditional society it was the thing called the mir. It was you know the world, the village, and it had elders and it had its own rules and regulations. And your lives were ninety nine percent just managed by yourself. What the government did was to tax you and conscript you. So, anybody who came along and said that if you you know got rid of this system, you would be freed. You, you, there would be a, an, an, a kind of organic, a spontaneous order would emerge. Well, there was already a kind of spontaneous order there. The peasants, for the most part, get along just fine without the government. But that, remember, isn't what the communists offered. Okay, communists love government. That's That's their way of achieving things. And uh, yeah, the best example of that was, I think, when Lenin said, you know, that the state is simply a, a weapon of one class against another. So the state has forces, it has police, it has bureaucracy, it has an army, it, it eventually has a monopoly of organized violence. And, and that's simply, you know, the, his history is simply the battle between different elites, or if you prefer, psychopathic minorities, in order to control the state, in order to dominate everybody else. But you could combine part of what was going on in 1917 was this, this, and in some ways, let's call them a psychopathic elite or one note who, who were leading the revolution. But what was fueling it, what, what they had needed to keep this going, was that accumulated resentment and that kind of anarchistic spirit among the peasantry, because as, as long as you can say, we are liberating you from your previous oppression, while well, putting into a new one, um, that's what would, that's what would keep it going. Mm -hmm. And it did. Great. Well, I think we'll end it there, Rick. Um, do you have any, okay. do you have any um, upcoming books or do you, do you just have projects that you're working on that could become, you know, books in the future? Well, okay. Uh, let me, uh, you know, give me my couple of minutes of shameless self-promotion yeah, here. Go ahead. Um, so one of the things I've done, I retired from the university last year. Congratulations. So one of the things that I've been doing more of since then is getting into, so I've, I've been working part for something called the great courses. Oh yes. Yep. Great courses. puts out a whole variety of, you know, of uh, essentially non-credit classes, video courses, and all kinds of things. And they're now branching out into platforms. So what have I done recently? Uh, I did a 24-part uh, Real History of Secret Societies, which is available to the great courses. Uh, and one of those secret societies, one episode is basically discusses communism as a secret society, you know, how it's organized. Um, 
the sort of secret society history of, of, the, of the Russian Revolution. Uh, more recently, I've done one called Crimes of the Century, uh, Selective History of Infamy that looks at 12 historical homicides, basically. Everything from the assassination of Trotsky and Franz Ferdinand to the Lindbergh kidnapping and to some murderous maids in Paris. So there's, there's a selection there. Uh, and I'm currently working on called Secrets of the Occult. So I, I get to go into that one as well. That will hopefully be out next year at some point. And uh, a variety of other projects that I keep juggling around, one of which is indeed American spies in, in Bolshevik Russia, which I may get around to at some point. But it's... Uh, you know, I, I said earlier that one of the things that was very much on my mind was Trotsky's relationship with his uncle Abram, because one of the things I'm trying to do now is to take the information I have about that family and its relationship and put it into some kind of article, which keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, I don't know what that will turn to. One of the things you do is you, you collect a lot of data, but what you eventually have to do is turn it into a narrative. Mm -hmm. You have to take all of these little disparate pieces of information, and then you have to describe it. And when you do that, interesting things happen. And patterns emerge that you hadn't really noticed before. So in this case, what I find that everybody I'm talking about is somebody's cousin or uncle. I mean, it's just one big family. And, and those, those things become... Because, but, 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 yeah, that emerges much more important than it had previously seen. So that may become something. Um, I also expressed my general interest in, in spies. Uh, so one of the things I've been looking at as um, uh, if anybody there is familiar with John Whiteside Parsons, Jack Parsons, American mm -hmm. rocket engineer. Yes. Yeah. One of the pioneers of our space program uh -huh. and kind a of follower of occultist Alex Kroll. Yeah. In fact, Parsons was, you know, a pretty big occultist in himself. Mm -hmm. Well, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a couple of years ago, and we were talking about Parsons. And, you know, Parsons was involved in lots of military contracts. And if you look at it, he twice lost his security clearance because he had this tendency to, well, violate it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's an occultist and he doesn't engage in orgiastic behavior. And he ran this kind of crash pad in which various people who worked at JPL and a couple who worked at Los Alamos were there. And the question came up, could Jack Parsons have been a Soviet spy? I mean, you know, gee, if I, you know, I was looking around for somebody who had contacts with, you know, with, you know, he's, he's developing weapons for the American military, all right, rocketry. And he's friends with people who, I don't know, like work on the atomic bomb project. And think of all the wonderful opportunities for compromise. There's nothing like getting people naked and on drugs to make them do things that you can blackmail them with. And that's the way espionage works. So the more you thought about it, it was like, well, you know, if somebody in the KGB hadn't tried to recruit Parsons, you know, they weren't doing their job. Missed opportunity. 
And then you start looking around and you find that, you know, he was a member of the party for a while. And he did belong to this group that was actually being led by, which was run by the Communist Party and there were links to the, to the KGB in San Francisco. So maybe that's not so. So one of the things I did was to write, it, it's, it's actually posted on a couple of blogs on the web. Um, and it was just sort of laying out the case for could Parsons have been a Soviet intelligence asset? And kind of looks that way. I'm not absolutely convinced of it, but I'm not convinced it wasn't as well, which then raises all kinds of interesting connections. Like why did he actually, you know, was his death an accident? Yeah, because he supposedly like blew himself up accidentally, right? Yeah, you know, for a guy who was pretty well practiced, you know, yeah, he blew himself up um, in his home lab and probably, you know, if you're dealing with explosives, sooner or later, something's going to go bang. Although he had avoided that up to this point. But the interesting thing to me is that what he was doing, what was happening before that is that he had lost his, you know, he'd lost his security clearance. He was never going to get another one. Okay, because you don't work on classified projects and take classified notes home and then have someone type them up with the intention that you're going to give them to somebody else. You know, that's that's highly questionable. <laughs> so his whole career in the U.S. was gone. So he was he said he was going to go to Israel. He was going to go to Israel and, and build missiles for the Israeli military. But on the other hand, he could just as easily have been going to defect behind so was that what he was going to do? Was he going to take? And then the question would be, do you really want Jack Parsons with all of his knowledge and talent and what he knows to go and give that to somebody else? So was it an accident or wasn't it an accident? Mm. Probably was, but you never know. Mm. So that's one of the things that sort of got me started with that. And then I've also looked around in... Um, one of the things I began to pay attention to, partly through Parsons' work, I would run across these other characters, was, was something that I would never, never had taken any interest in, which was the whole UFO thing. Mm -hmm. All right. And I want to say here that I'm a complete agnostic when it comes to all things dealing with UFOs. I don't know. Are there aliens? Probably. Okay. Will they ever come to Earth? I don't know. Right? I haven't seen one. Okay. Um, I, that's. That's pretty much what it takes. You know, it, it's like Bigfoot. Do you want me to believe in Bigfoot? Show me one. All right, that's what it will take. It will take me, dead or alive, I've got to see it. Otherwise, it's just some interesting stories, mm -hmm. curious things. But it got me looking at the whole, because Parsons is sort of mixed up with that, and his wife goes into it. And what I saw when I looked at it was I didn't see aliens. What I saw were a lot of people with aerospace and intelligence connections every time you turned around. And a lot of this stuff to me looked like psychological operations hmm. because some of it is just... And if you go back and, you know, particularly in, in the 50s and so on and look at some of the early sort of, you know, like George Adamski would be an example. One of the first guys who claims he rode in a flying saucer and met a Venusian in the Mojave Desert. 
that the whole story on the face of it is goofy. I mean, it's if you were going to make up a story about alien contact, even in the 1950s, why would you make up something that seemingly silly and unbelievable? Mm-hmm. Or was that, in some ways, the whole purpose of it began to make me wonder? And so that led to the, the project, which I've called Flying Saucers and Secret Agents, Okay, which, again, isn't about chasing aliens, but it's about chasing down intelligence connections within this and to what degree, you know, not leaving aside, you know, not, not denying that, you know, that, that there could be that kind of aspect of it. But there's also a very clearly, to me, a terrestrial explanation yeah. well i mean much of this. there's there are some um some people in the ufo you know field who would probably agree with with that take but they might say that the reason this was going on was that this was kind of a counterintelligence well an intelligence operation in order to discredit the phenomenon so that it be, could be covered up so that people wouldn't learn the truth about it right so you can look at it from from it's any always, angle it's always Yes, you can always argue that it's the cover-up. It, it's it's like the the um, yeah. One of the things I I gave, recently gave a kind of public lecture on or or talk was the whole Roswell thing. It was kind of the anniversary of that. And I have to say personally, to me, if I go over it and I look at the news reports and the rest of it, I don't see anything going on. Right? It's you know there was you know there's there's like some rubber debris and balsa wood and tinfoil this guy finds on his ranch and then for some the, the mystery to me is why someone at the Air Force Base then decides to to run an article saying that they found a disc okay a flying disc not that they found there's no mention of it being crashed there's no mention about it it's like the the the, the press release from the base is oh we've got a flying disc but then then the next day it was like oh no we don't so. I don't know who authorized that, but it, it looks to me more like one of these things that just got out of hand in, in some way, but then has been, but then the explanation we get for it is that, well, no, no, see, all of these are cover stories. Everyone's giving a cover story. All of them, you know, when, when Mac Brazell, the rancher, says he found that, well, that's just a cover story. But that's the only story there is. I mean, you're always assuming that whatever you know, the, the assumption goes, the story you have isn't true because there's some other story for which you actually have no evidence. The only thing for which there's any evidence is the story which you're now saying isn't true. To me, because you want another story to be true, and and that's it. I, um, it's it's it, it's one of those things to me that's more interesting in some ways. And again, in its in its mass psychological implications than it is for other factors. I also find it very interesting that this whole early flying saucer waves goes along hand in hand when MK Ultra is taking place. Yeah. There's some crossovers from that. I mean, you know, it's not like the government wouldn't be out with secret programs to try to, you know, manipulate people's minds, would it? Right. So nah, they'd never do anything like that. They, they wouldn't secretly give people drugs and hypnosis in order to create mind control killers. Nah, no, nah, that wouldn't happen. They just don't do that. But then later they admit, yeah, yeah, we tried that, but it didn't work. That's that's the the thing I have. Yeah, yeah, we 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 did it, but we didn't find there was anything there. Yeah, you know, we we've we played around with uh, mind control and remote viewing and all of this stuff repeatedly, 
and found that it doesn't work, but then we just repeatedly <laughs> find to do it. We just like trying. So we just like trying, but um, <laughs> it's a bit like the concept of the of the, the weaponization of, of magic, you know, the, the exploration of, of occultism to see. What if you found out it didn't work? Are you ever going to go public with that? No. That would be giving it, that would be, the, be revealing the whole secret you're going to do. I mean, if you actually found out something of that kind, that would immediately have to become secret. Thus, you would have to argue. I mean, the only answer you could ever give, whether it's the right one or whether it's, the, in this case, the cover-up, is that we experimented with this, but we found out that it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then you got one of two possibilities. You experimented and you found out it didn't work, or you experimented and you found out it did work, and that scared the hell out of everybody, and now you can't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Because the enemy might find out, who, of course, doing exactly the same thing and lying about it. So, <laughs> well, there you go. All, all of those projects sound yeah. sound interesting and uh, interesting, Rick. And I'd I'd only first heard of the the great courses. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember. I heard about it last year, sometime I think, or in the last couple of years. But, but um, yeah, it's a great uh, uh, it's a great program, a great a great project, and. Uh, and I hope that it sounds like your courses um, could have the potential to be very popular in in the great courses uh, lineup. So I I hope that I hope they bring I hope they are very successful. I think successful. they've done pretty well. I, I think they yeah they they've got every you know if you great courses has everything from you know basket weaving to ballroom dancing. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm sure they have one. I know they have one on ballroom dancing. Anything you could possibly be interested in. There are hundreds of them. And, um, but, uh, mine is, is more in the, in the historical end. Cool. Yeah. Well, where can, is there a website that we can direct listeners and viewers to for your work or? Well, the only website that I have, Luddite that I am, um, I still have my university website, which is kind of semi up to date. So if you want to know more about who I am and the courses I used to teach and the things that I'm interested in projects, you can go there. Okay. Uh, anybody who might want to contact me and be polite. Okay. <laughs> Cause if you write me a nasty email, I won't answer you. Uh, but anyone you really, who might want to contact me can do that. My email is R Spence, R S P E N C E at U Idaho, U I D A H O dot E D U. So you can reach me there with any kind of semi legitimate question of one kind or another and um and one of the things i do have my wife keeps pushing me to you should create your own website and post your stuff there which at some point i might get around to but i'm not quite sure when that's that's going to be fair enough okay well we'll we will include a link to your university website we'll include a link to uh, a place to purchase your book and um yeah thanks for thanks for being on it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing you great and there's so much i mean we only scratched the we just barely dug into anything in in this book there's so much more in it so i'd recommend if anyone is interested if if these kind of if these topics um sparked your curiosity in the slightest that you should check out the book um 
it's very it's extensive and like like you said Rick earlier on there's a lot of names but but many of them they show up so often that you you get you kind of come to know these people so it's uh, it's <laughs> It's not too. It's not too confusing. You can you can yeah, follow it. In, yeah. in anything else I've learned in research, pay attention to the thing that keeps coming up over and over again. Mm-hmm. You keep bumping into the same name, especially in different, that's that's what you should begin to pay attention to. That mm-hmm. you should begin to focus your your interest on that. And yes, the same names will will repeat themselves, and a pattern will emerge. A pattern that. Uh, seems to All play right. itself out over and over but uh okay thanks again rick it's been a pleasure and thank you we'll talk again right. soon. okay All right bye-bye bye-bye